The Water Values Podcast, Session 71. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey, and thanks for joining me. Great and listener-requested guests coming up today. And before we get to that, I want to th- say thank you to Jody for awarding the podcast yet another five-star rating and a fantastic review on iTunes over the last two weeks. I uh, greatly appreciate your comments, Jody, and thank you. Uh, and I'd really appreciate it if you other listeners, if you enjoy the show, to give both a rating and a review on iTunes like Jody did. It's a great way to help the podcast reach others who might also be interested in water issues. Well, today's guest is Klaus Helix Nielsen. He's Danish and well-versed in the science of water, particularly in the field of membranes. One of my several Danish listeners recommended that Klaus come on the show and fill us in on the status of membrane technology, and it turned out to be a great idea. It was absolutely fascinating, and Klaus was a terrific person to speak with. We had a great little talk beforehand about some of Copenhagen's improvements since I was last there in 1992. Uh, Klaus mentioned uh, the waterfront in Copenhagen has improved dramatically, and since then, and you know, I think that is uh, consistent with what we've seen in a lot of other American cities: is that their American cities are realizing the value of water. Uh, to their economic well-being, and and they're improving their waterfronts. Well, with with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Klaus, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time, especially uh, since we're a world apart, uh, half a world apart, I should say. Um, Could you tell us, Klaus, a little about uh, your background and how you got interested in water? First of all, thanks for letting me allow you to talk here. Um, yes, so my name is Klaus Helix Nielsen, and I'm working um, in a company trying to commercialize these new types of membranes, biomimetic membranes. I guess we'll, you know, get back to that uh, later. But uh, my background is really sort of not the typical membrane engineer. Actually, I'm trained as a biophysicist. Uh, did my master's and my PhD actually in computational neuroscience. Very far from membranes, you can say. But still, at the end of the day, you know, what we're talking about are really, you know, uh, is, is really cells and how they communicate, especially neurons. And there's a lot of membrane stuff going on there. So membranes, although biological membranes, have something that has been very close to my heart for, for a number of years. And also, the, especially the sort of the intricacies of, of membrane transport, how water and ions are being transported uh, collectively across uh, membranes. So then just to cut a, a long story short, I got involved in this startup uh, here in Denmark, uh, Aquaporin AS, which, as the, the name also implies, is a company that actually detects one of these proteins that is responsible for only transporting water across cell membranes, the aquaporins, uh, a protein that was discovered uh, and in, in within the recent uh, about 10, 20 years has been really studied a lot and now we try to really lift it out of its sort of biological origin and put it into uh, to membranes and to sort of the more classical membrane engineering polymeric membrane and this we're trying to make a happy marriage between the protein and and, and this polymer matrix so okay. at the end of the day why are we doing this uh, we're doing it because we really think that that holds uh, very nice opportunities 
for giving new functionalities to membrane. You can get superior flux. You can get uh, superior rejection of solutes. And uh, we think that there's really some interesting uh, applications. Uh, and we'll also, I guess, get back to those uh, later in this talk. Sure. And that sounds uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, let, let's let's kind of start at the beginning uh, of the membranes. Can you can you kind of walk us through the different kinds of membranes there are and the kind of membrane that your that your company and sure. your research is focusing on? Sure. Um, so basically, you know, you can have membranes that you would almost you can we can start with the coffee filter, right? That's a sort of you know a very easy to to picture that yeah the okay we have some stuff which is being retained and then we have our coffee going through the membrane and that's basically you know a sealing effect. There's some sort of microscopic pores in the membrane, and in a way we can we can also refer to that as a, as a microfiltration membrane. And then as you go down in the scale, you have an ultrafiltration membrane, nanofiltration membrane. And as you can hear on the prefix, it really becomes the pores basically get smaller and smaller. Um, and then it comes to the fact where you really want to sort of separate. Uh, small monovalent anions or cations, uh, sodium chloride, for example, which you would do if you want to do desalination. Then you have to move to a different type of membrane. We call it uh, the reverse osmosis membrane, basically also uh, implying what technique we're using here. Because in a way, in order to, for example, remove ions from water, you need to uh, overcome the uh, osmotic pressure that is in your solution you want to, to basically purify or extract the water from. And in order to overcome that, you have to apply some pressure. And that's basically what you do in a reverse osmosis membrane. It's also very important to point out that the design of the reverse osmosis membrane, or the RO membrane, as we also refer to it, uh, is really the fact that it's a, it's a non-porous membrane. It's a dense polymeric matrix that sits on top of a, of a support. You can maybe sort of picture it uh, as, as a kind of a carrot cake, and then you have a, an icing on top. And really, where all the, the fascinating stuff takes place is really in the icing. That is the active layer. That is where we get this effect that we want, that the water is passing through, and basically the ions are being left behind. And again, as I said, this is based on an, a very dense material that doesn't really have sort of physical pores that are going all the way through. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a more it's a different mechanism than we have in the in the coffee filter, for example. Okay. Uh, so basically, the, the the RO system is 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 uh, is giving its uh, what gives it its 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 uh, performance is really the fact that you have this uh, very dense membrane. But that's also what gives it maybe you can say drawbacks in the sense that okay, then the water flux is is now less. Because it is this dense material where they don't have really any 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 physical pores. Okay, uh, and so how long have these RO membranes been around? Oh, they have been around for for a good 40, 50 years. That that was uh, the technique was really pioneered in the late fifties and early sixties. They began to commercialize it. So you can say, in contrast to the the science on on biological membranes, the membrane engineering is is a relatively new. Uh, from a technology point of view, a new a newcomer uh, here. So I would say the last 50 years has really sort of been the, the basic idea to have these membranes. Now we're specifically talking about these membranes suited for reverse osmosis. Um, so, so, so you can say that, of course, there has been also the changes and modifications and improvements, but the basic design idea has basically persisted until this day. And you also mentioned that 
you, th- th- how these RO membranes work is you have to overcome the osmotic pressure. You know, wh- what all is involved in, in overcoming that osmotic pressure? So basically, uh, let's say that you wanted to make, uh, you know, let's, the, the canonical example here would be desalination of seawater. And if we take seawater, um, you will see that the osmotic pressure is, is around, say, 25 bars, 25 atmospheres, if you want. Uh, and that means that in order to squeeze water through a membrane, let's, let's just for a second imagine that we have an ideally selective membrane that will only let water pass. Then we would have to apply pressure that exceeds those 25 bars or atmospheres of pressure before the first drop of water will ever appear on the other side of the membrane. Now you can imagine that let's say that we want to reduce the volume of our seawater to, to half of what we started with. Then, of course, the concentration of the ions will also be doubled in the, in the, when we get to the end when we have only our half volume left, which also means that the osmotic pressure will be doubled. In other words, that all translates into the fact that typically you would operate RO systems at pressures 40, 50, 60, even 70 bars. And that is requiring a lot of energy in order basically to have electric pumps to, uh, to generate such pressures. So that's basically sort of the, the picture of a, of a garden variety RO desalination plant. Sure. And so you're going to need real big pumps. It's going to take a lot of energy, going to be very expensive. Uh, to yeah. to undertake that desal process, what about what about the the maintenance of the the membranes themselves? I mean, it, uh, cleaning, uh, tearing, things like that. Is is there any is there any issues along those lines? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, uh, any membrane process is only as good as 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 the pretreatment of uh, what you use to to feed it with. So, in other words, if, if you have, uh, you know, feed water of an inferior quality, there's a lot of suspended solids and things like that, then, of course, an, a pressure-driven process, especially something like RO, would, would be suffering a lot from this, and actually the membranes would, would clog or foul, as we call it, very, very fast, you know, even within seconds in some, in some cases. So, of course, pretreatment of what you want to do, your RO process on, your reverse osmosis process, is essential. And there, of course, you can maybe use some of the other membrane technologies like microfiltration, ultrafiltration. So basically, you can imagine several steps where you make it, you know, the separation better and better. And then at the end, you do your reverse osmosis. But it is a, it is a, um, a problematic thing because also the way that these membrane modules are designed, so basically, it's not enough just to have a sheet of, of membrane. You actually also have to have that membrane integrated into modules and the geometry, for example, typically used in reverse osmosis uh, membrane modules is really some kind of spiral rune system where you have a, a system where the membranes are packed very, very tightly, which also means that, of course, you can have a lot of membrane in a, in a, in a limited volume, which is a nice thing. But the drawback is that these are very, very difficult to clean. So uh, membrane operators, they really sort of tend to also be a little bit uh, anxious when, when you want to introduce membranes in something where you're not really sure about the quality of the feed water. That has to be controlled very accurately uh, before you want to apply RO and really make RO efficient. Hmm. Uh, in terms of pretreatment, um, I, I, my suspicion is there's a number of ways that, that pretreatment can be arrived at. Uh, in one of my earlier podcasts, we talked with Forbes Guthrie, um, and he he his company does works with a lot of produced water, a lot of frac water, industrial process water, and he was talking about the ceramic filters they use. Uh, 
could you could you contrast the RO filter with the ceramic filter, and would the ceramic filter kind of be a good pretreatment option for for the RO membrane? I would guess in, in some cases you could definitely use ceramic filters. I think for things, it really also depends a lot on your um, your the value of basically the cost associated with your um, the, the water that you actually finally extract. For example, seawater desalination, you can say that the you cannot charge a whole lot per, per gallon or liter of water produced in, in such a system, which means that you have to think in also the economics of the pretreatment. And ceramic membranes are quite expensive compared to these polymeric membranes that typically are the RO membrane design as we use it today so yeah sure you can do it however it might actually kill you in terms of the economics of the <laughs> system because you just have something which is is too expensive ceramic membranes are nice from the point of view that yeah especially i mean frack water produced water uh where sometimes you really would need to clean the membranes you can do really really nasty things to ceramic membranes and they're still happy i mean you, you can heat them up you can really use very very harsh chemicals where for the polymeric membranes, it's a bit more delicate. Uh, you have to be careful with membranes. Of course, you can clean membranes, but there are issues with uh, changes in pH and things like that, that that you have to think about how you actually, uh, which type of polymeric membranes that you that you use. Uh, so yeah, I think ceramics, in terms of membranes, they have their niche in, in, in these sort of heavy duty industrial applications, such as the one that you mentioned. Uh, but again, we have to contrast that with the, with the cost of the membranes. Okay, so... What other technologies or membranes are are out there that can provide this this kind of pretreatment before the RO process? In that case, of course, I mean, there's a whole bunch of you can say traditional things you can do. Of course, there's chemical pretreatment. Uh, imagine that you have uh, wastewater with a high concentration of uh, uh, heavy metals or something like that. There are kind of various ways that we can precipitate these uh, metals uh, complexes out of solution. Um, but I mean, something which, of course, also is is close to what uh, what I'm doing, also in terms of both science and and, and technology development, is this uh, thing called forward osmosis. And you know, forward osmosis has sort of arisen as as sort of almost being being presented as a magic bullet that can solve all your problems. And that's not really the case. I'm very fond of forward osmosis. Don't get me wrong on that, but it has really to be sort of seen. What actually can it be? Can it be used for? So, so just sort of to backtrack a little bit. So, forward osmosis is reverse reverse osmosis. So, basically, we do not apply any pressure. We let the osmosis do the the job in the sense that you have two different solutions. Then, in the forward osmosis process, you will extract water into something which has a higher osmotic pressure than the than the feed solution. And now you can say, what? Okay, what what problem does that solve? I'm moving water from one side of the membrane to the other, but I still have something else because that is basically what generates the osmotic pressure that you can do this with. But you can imagine, if you can picture this, um, that you have an FO, the forward osmosis, as a pretreatment to RO. So you have your reverse osmosis process running. You are concentrating your, let's say, your saline solutions generate a concentrated brine, and that brine you then pass back 
into the forward osmosis system and use that to extract the water. You dilute the brine and it goes in a circle. So the, the a reverse osmosis membrane will never see anything but, say, sodium chloride or magnesium chloride or something. Something very well defined, which is good for the RO process because then it'll be well behaved and we don't have to clean the membranes as, long, as much and so on. And then for the forward osmosis, it's really the screen where you can have your ultimate the feed water would actually be quite impaired with a lot of stuff in it. But because the airflow part is not pressure driven, we are not applying pressure there. That means that the propensity for fouling and other things would everything else equal be lower. So that actually is one thing where I think there's a you can argue that there will be a happy marriage. It could be a happy marriage between FO and RO. Sure. But it's important really here to to, to also highlight, uh, sorry, uh, is is the fact that, that you know, because FO was really sort of, there was a lot of buzz around FO uh, for a number of years. And, and also some, I would say, misleading claims uh, has been actually put out there um, because it was really also introduced as a technology that doesn't use any energy. And that is not really true. I mean, you're using an osmotic gradient, which is there, but that gradient has to come from somewhere. You still have to pay the price. You cannot cheat on thermodynamics, not even in, in the corporate world. Uh, so, <laughs> so you just have to to stick to this. And and and. I, but I, I, what I'm trying to argue is that I think FO is a great thing in combination with other things, such as we talked about RO. But there could also be other examples. Sure. I think that is really where this forward osmosis could have a. Uh, a future for it. Yes. Sure. And so, and so this sounds very interesting. So forward osmosis, uh, it, it's not a pressure driven membrane. You just kind of let the osmotic process work. Can it, so what, what is it removing that the, the RO membrane is not going to remove or what? Or, okay. Uh, so basically the forward osmosis could in principle remove the same things as a reverse osmosis membrane. Both membranes will have to be a very, very water selective and uh, have a high selectivity for water and a high rejection of, of uh, anything else but water, including small uh, monovalent ions such as, uh, you know, sodium, potassium, chloride, and so on. And, and that is really, you know, you can say the, the, the um, similarity. Um, but of course, the, the process itself is, is different because Given the fact that, that the RO membrane is a pressure-driven process, which means that the backing of the membrane, the whole structure of the membrane has to be able to withstand these very high pressures. That means that the way that these membranes are designed is really with that in mind, that we have to be able to, membranes must be able to, to work even at these very high applied pressures. Which means, and now it's getting maybe a little bit technical, but but the, the structure of these membranes is so that if I want to do, use those in FO and make a forward osmosis membrane uh, process uh, with an RO membrane, that would not work. Uh, so basically, the big challenge in in this forward osmosis is really to design the membrane in such a way that you can have this osmosis going. And it sounds a bit paradoxical because you can say, well, I mean, osmosis. I mean, come on, we have known this for 250 years. How come that we haven't really figured out how to make membranes on that? Uh, and that is based is due to the fact that it has to be a very uh, kind of open structure that really will allow this osmotic pressure to, uh, sorry, this osmotic process to take place. And yet it has to also have this very high selectivity and very high rejection of solute and basically everything else except water. And that just proves to be a, a technical, you know, uh, challenging thing to do. 
And that's, I think this is where you can see there's a lot of progress. Several groups around the world uh, are now developing these FO membranes with, with better and better, you can say, performance data. But, but uh, we're still, uh, I would say, it's still a little bit early days. There are commercial products out there, including the ones from our company, but it's still, uh, you know, there's still, I would say, room for improvement and there's room for how really to show how it can be integrated in, 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 in existing systems hmm. and, yeah. and really prove its okay. case here. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get in and learn some uh, about what Aquaporin does. Uh, but before we get to that point, what what are the the industries where you see uh, that forward osmosis could could make a difference? I mean, we've talked about kind of pretreatment for for desal and, and the general FO process, but you know, what what would be the commercial application of FO? So I, I guess you can you can think of a variety of of, of uh, commercial. Um, applications. Food and beverage, just to take one segment, is clearly a, a segment where you would like, for example, to extract water. You may want to upconcentrate your must for wine production or your juice or fruit juice or something. Um, and in those concentration processes and also in the whole biorefinery uh, segment, you may want to do that. But you may not, uh, also from economical reasons, but also for technical reasons, may not want to use uh, excessive, for example, uh, you can evaporate water, right? But but then maybe if you do that, you will destroy whatever you have in your in your solution that you want to you know, concentrate. It could be your fruit juice, or it could be a biofinery product. So therefore, you would need to figure out a way to remove the water, extract the water, in a in a you know very unscientific term, a gentle way of doing it, um, <laughs> without excessive uh, you know uh, perturbations. And and there, I think forward osmosis could have a great potential. Uh, and, and indeed has been shown in many, you know, you can say pilot scale applications of various things where you want to extract water from from produce and biofinal products actually has proven that, that it works. We're still, I guess, a little bit, um, you know, waiting for sort of really to see the big breakthrough commercially of FO as, as, as the thing to do. Um, but I, I guess, I guess, uh, we will definitely see that in the, in the years to come. Because in these also, there's another technical issue here. In these applications where you want to concentrate, where the concentrate is your final product, let's just think about that. Then, of course, okay, I'm extracting the water in one direction, but my osmotic solution that I have on the other side who's doing the job, or which is doing the job, is, of course, a high concentration of something. It could be, let's say, sodium chloride, but it could be, in principle, anything. Then, if the membrane is not perfect, there will also be a reverse salt flux. There will be a reverse flux of your osmolite or the osmotic agent on the other side going back into your crude concentrate, and you're not interested in that. So the membrane also has to, at least it has to have a high water permeability, maybe not too high, because you can live with that if you if you just wait long enough, then the water will be. But what really is important is the fact that you don't have this reverse solute flux or reverse salt flux, as, as we typically call it. Um, and that, that's another hard thing to try to be achieved. What about, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of concern about kind of pharmaceuticals and nanopollutants and other uh, pollutants in, in, in waterways. Can any of the membranes we're talking about today, could they help filter out uh, those types of pollutants? Right. So, so basically, uh, you can say that Let's imagine that we have some water which is in pretty good conditions, pretty clean and so on, but there are still some very uh, hard to get rid of small solutes. It could be xenobiotics, uh, you know, uh, 
pharmaceuticals, it would be pesticides, metabolites of that, something small molecular weight uh, molecules. Maybe, you know, many of these, they don't carry charge, which also means that, you know, it's just harder to separate them using a membrane technology. Uh, they're small and no charge. That's really a bad guy for a membrane because it will, it will really easily go through. Um, but actually, by virtue of being a non-pressure-driven process, then FO actually seems to have better uh, rejections just by the fact that it's an FO membrane uh, than RO of such things. So you could, again, going back to the idea of using FO as a pretreatment to something else, that pretreatment could actually be superior in removing these uh, small compounds uh, based on, on membrane technology. I mean, there might be other ways you can remove them. But of course, that 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 you know, could be chemical waste, degradation, whatever. But but if we are restricting our discussion to membranes, I think that that's actually a case where you could argue that FO membranes uh, actually has a a, um, a value proposition because they can actually achieve this. Uh, and and we have seen this with our membranes, and other people have seen what types of FO membranes. I think there is definitely a, a case there also to be uh, fully explored, uh, exploited uh, commercially in the coming years. So I think now's the, now's the time to ask you about aquaporin. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, can you kind of tell us what your, what, what's your role at aquaporin and what, what does aquaporin do? Right. Okay. So, so just give you a very uh, brief story on aquaporin. Aquaporin was, was a company that was founded in 2005. And uh, one of the co-founders actually did some um, computer simulations of uh, aquaporin protein. Uh, a couple of years before 2003, uh, Peter Agri was awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery of uh, aquaporins. I mean, people have been, people, I mean, physiologists and so on have been talking for years and years. There must be something like a water channel, but it was just very hard for them to nail it down and really prove, yeah, that's the one, this is the protein that's doing that job. Uh, and Peter Eger and his team were able to do that, and uh, they published the seminal papers in the early 90s, and then he was awarded the Nobel Prize uh, about 10 years later. Uh, and then, in the meantime, actually, the first really sort of atomic resolution structures of these proteins became available by from structural biologists. Again, you can see how I like to talk about, you know, the biology also, uh, <laughs> because I really think this is fascinating, this whole idea of biomimetics, that you can learn things from nature. Um, but here, in this case, uh, these atomic uh, structure um, of, of uh, aquaporins allows you then to make these computer simulations. You can really see how the water molecules are moving through and how other things are being rejected. And, you know, he was working on that, and that sort of prompted him to say, well, you know, if you look at it and do a back-of-the-envelope calculations and imagine that we can create this perfect membrane and imagine that, you know, we can put 50% of that area is covered by these aquaporins, then you can crank out a number for the uh, water permeability, which is, you know, orders of magnitude higher than uh, what you see with these commercially available uh, oral membranes that, that we can buy today. So I say, aha, here is something that actually could be a fun thing to do. And then he teamed up uh, with the, the other co-founder of the company, who's now the CEO, um, and actually sort of created the company. And so the first thing that, of course, that they had to show was, can we actually take these proteins and build them into something and show that there's a selected transport of water? And that's where I came into the picture, because at the time, I was associate professor at the Department of Physics at the Technical University of Denmark, and um, my colleague co-founder who did those simulations, he was just basically sitting a few offices down the, 
the hall. So, so we got together in the coffee breaks and, well, yeah, it would be fun to look at this. And then that's basically how, how we started. So first of all, we had to prove that we actually we could, we could build these uh, proteins into membranes. Um, then, of course, also at the same time, submit the first patents to really protect the technology. Uh, and then basically it, it sort of took off from there. So now, 10 years later, so what did we spend uh, all the venture money on? We spent them primarily on showing that how can you actually upscale this? Because it's, it's of course, there's a lot of nice science in how to study these proteins and making small micron-sized membranes under a microscope, and you can really do nice things about that. But that doesn't really, you know, make it in terms of the technology. You have to be able to argue that you can actually make this in, you know, millions of square feet or square meters. Um, really, that is a scalable technology. And also the fact is, is, is that it has to be uh, cost effective. I mean, going back to desalination membranes, if you look at the price or the cost of desalination membranes over the last, you know, 10 years or so, it's really sort of exponentially going down. I mean, it's just, there's a driver there, which is the price, the cost, it's going down and down and down, which means that, you know, in order to be competitive in that market segment, your membranes cannot be much more expensive as the one that they use today. Otherwise, you don't have really an interest in that market. And those were the things that we, from the very beginning, thought, okay, how can we do this in a cheap way that, allowed us to really make this a scalable technology. Um, so that has really uh, been what we have now achieved and, and are making, we have pilot scale production of these membranes, you know, basically like a roll-to-roll, -roll, uh, basic membranes that could be you know, suitable for, for um, like spiral wound modules as you have an RO. And we've also recently uh, succeeded in making uh, hollow fibers based on the, uh, on the same um, technology. So that's basically sort of the very short uh, story of of, of aquaporin. Okay, so so aquaporin is a protein that um, was discovered or yeah was discovered in the in the nineties by one of the co-founders of the company aquaporin. Is the membrane made out of aquaporin protein, or how how does the how does the existence of the protein aquaporin how does that assist in the membrane filtration okay. filtration process? Uh, just to clarify, so so the co-founder did not participate in the discovery of the coporin. Okay. He, uh, I was referring to the to the to Peter Aker who got the Nobel Prize for this. But in the due course, in you know, there were some structures coming out, and these structures could then be simulated in the computer, and then we could learn from this how how that actually works, and a lot of interesting biophysics and that. Uh, so that was just to clarify this. So how are the coporins? So basically, what the coporins can do, they have this enormous turnover of uh, of water. So basically, the permeability of aquaporin is really, really high. It's a molecule, you can say. It really is a pore that is spanning biological membranes. You have them in, on all living, um, you know, in all cells that you can you can think of. There will be aquaporins sitting in the membrane. So what they do is that they facilitate the water transport. I mean, in your kidney is an example of that. You're recirculating a lot of water every day, but you're not excreting that much compared to this amount of water. And that is that recirculation of, of, of water is for a large part taken care of by, by these aquaporins that are sitting in the, in the kidney and the blood run. Um, so, so, uh, but back to the membrane. So, so the challenge that we had was that, okay, we have to take these proteins out of their you know, biological habitat, so to speak, and put them into a polymeric structure. And uh, in that respect, uh, 
again, it's a long story, but but the, the, the bottom line is that we uh, we have have a nice and had at that time a nice started a nice collaboration collaboration with the uh, Singapore Membrane Technology Center, and together we actually found a way how to actually do this. So basically, building the aquapoints into some very small nano-sized uh, spheres that are then integrated into the membrane. And uh, so basically, you can think of of your your carrot cake, as, as I've talked about before, with the icing, and now we're just dumping a lot of raisins in that icing. Uh, and then raisin is representing representing a, a bunch of aquaporins who are basically increasing permeability to water while preserving a high rejection of everything else. You can say that the fact that the aquaporin membranes, uh, sorry, the aquaporin proteins are in the membrane is a way of tweaking or tuning the water selectivity of, uh, of the membrane. I hope that kind of makes it clear, but but it, it's really the the, the aquaporin is really the, the the component in the membrane that endows it with this very high uh, water permeability. What we have now, and the thing that we are producing in the pilot scale, is what we refer to as a first generation membrane. Uh, of course, there's a lot of improvement that can be made, but on the other hand, uh, I think it's important that actually this technology comes out and get also uh, tested. Uh, as it is, because of course one of the the first questions you will get uh, when you try to commercialize this is that well, okay, you're using these proteins. I mean, proteins are fragile structures. You know, aren't they going to fall apart? I mean, can they? Can you clean the membranes? I mean, all these kind of things is 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 things that we also had to address. And um, I can tell you that the membranes that we have today are, from that point of view, not much different from sort of the garden variety oral membrane you can buy today. So it's not really an issue uh, in terms of stability. Once the protein is sitting, the aquaporins are sitting in the membrane, it seems to be remarkably stable. But before to get it in there is really sort of a higher French cooking. There's a lot of things you have to be careful about in order to, to do it and get it right. But if you have that, then, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fairly stable, um, at least compared to, to, I would say, uh, what you have in reverse osmosis membranes today. Well, uh, terrific. I think the visual you gave really helped helped me at least visualize what, what these membranes or how the aquaporin fits into the membrane. So I th thank you for that. Um, and Klaus, you've been absolutely fantastic walking us through all these membrane technologies, uh, educating us about forward osmosis uh, and reverse osmosis and, t you know, telling us about aquaporins. And, the, you know, it sounds like a very revolutionary idea you're working on there. So Thank you again. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about what we've talked about today and aquaporin, where can they go to find that information? Uh, well, I mean, as a, as a good corporate person, I should point to the webpage of the company, of course. Um, but, you know, I mean, there, there are some, some it's, uh, yeah, aquaporin.dk or .com. Um, you can find, and there's also actually some reference literature and stuff. Um if you basically, you know, Google aquaporin and membranes, you, you'll find there's a, several academic groups around the world that are working on this uh, and describing it. Um, we also had, uh, actually together with our colleagues in Singapore, I wrote a review, recent review in, in the journal of desalination uh, that came out here this year. And I think that we here in that paper, we sort of present really the state of the art in the last kind of 10 years of development of these uh, type of membranes. Since, since we started. Uh, so I think that paper kind of gives you the, the overview of where we are in terms of performance, scalability, and so on. Not just from our work, but we really try to sort of 
prefer way what was out there in terms of other groups and, and uh, approaches. Yes. Sure. And for those folks who want to find out more about you in particular, I should have asked this uh, in conjunction with, with my earlier question, but for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to find that information? Uh, you can also go to the uh, the company website. There's a small profile of me. Um, I used to be, you can say, the the research director in Aquaporn, and now my official title is is uh, vice president of public private partnerships, which is basically just sort of a name in disguise for still doing research because the way well, I mean, we're still a venture based company, and and the way we finance research in the company is really to engage in uh, in uh, public private partnerships especially, of course, with universities and other knowledge institutions to then really drive the, uh, the research ahead. And that is good because when you go to the boardroom and have to explain why your burn rate is as it is, you can actually, it's a good thing because in that case, we are gearing, typically, maybe you get 50% funding from, from public money to drive the research. So we are doing, you can say, maybe a little bit atypical because we're really going out and we have done that consistently over the last 10 years to talk to a lot of people and really do this co-creation, co-development of, of the membrane. That, of course, also entails that we need to be sure that we protect the, the IP that we that, that basically is, is the core value of the company. Now we begin to have products, and now it's a different situation. But in the first many years, it was really the IP that was the, the core value of the company. So we have also been, you can say, quite unusual in that sense, in that we have uh, an aggressive, I would say, IP strategy. We're doing uh, filing several patents, uh, have uh, many patent families that are covering our technology. And that we and that we have done and, and prioritized because that will then allow us to go out and engage in all these uh, collaborations. So, so it has really, I mean, the amount of public money that we have gotten to do research uh, over the last ten years. I don't have the figure on the top of my head, but it, it's 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 substantial, absolutely. And that also means that we can argue to our investors. Well, I mean, your money is actually going to what you would like them to go to to bring a product to the market, and not doing all kinds of strange nerdy science that they may not appreciate. On the other hand, we think in the company that it's very, very important to have a broad research base in order to really fully exploit this, because this is really a platform technology. And especially in the early stages of development, we had so many unanswered questions that it was impossible for you know, one or two types of persons, you know, chemists, engineers, and so on, to come up with all the solutions. We had to go out and talk to everybody from, you know, molecular biologists to plumbers, basically. You know, spanning a huge amount of, of different, um, you know, disciplines and research areas and te technology development areas. And that has really, I think, also been a, a, a hallmark of our approach, and I would say still is. Terrific. So my role is, is is really sort of to yeah to to try and 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 um, and control this or to not control it but to coach and to to uh, to foster this uh, R and D work that that we do and uh, I'm also a part time associate professor at the Technical University. I in the meantime transferred from physics to environmental engineering to get closer to the water. Uh, I also I'm heading a, a laboratory in uh, University of Maribor in Slovenia. Also because uh, they thought it was cool to really work uh, on, on these membrane developments in that setting. Um, so I'm really living this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde life where I'm in the company part of the time and in, in, in university. And I really like this kind of split. Uh, sometimes can be a slightly schizophrenic uh, experience. 
because the mindsets are really different. But I think really the advantages clearly outweigh the disadvantages. Well, Klaus, thank you so much. You've This has been a fantastic uh, learning experience for me. So I just want to thank you again for your time. Uh, it's been greatly appreciated. You're really welcome. And thank you for inviting me on board on your, on your show. Oh, you bet. We'll talk to you soon, Klaus. Thanks. Bye. Sure. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Klaus Helix Nielsen. As you can tell, he's very smart and yet very personable. And that's a rare combination to find both of those qualities in the same person. So I I hold Klaus in high esteem for that. Uh, And as a native English speaker, I was very impressed with Klaus's excellent command of the English language, especially when he dropped the word perturbations. I went back and listened to that one a couple of times. So (laughs) Um, my big takeaway from the interview is the state of membrane technology And from what I can gather, it appears that we're on the cusp of a lot of innovation in membranes. Aquaporin was one example that, you know, Klaus was intimately familiar with. But even with Klaus's warning uh, that that forward osmosis membranes are not a miracle membrane, they still hold a lot of promise for the future. I really look forward to seeing how these membranes progress commercially as we enter this era of both water quantity and water quality scarcity. You know, my position is that the membranes Klaus discusses could dramatically help improve the water quality side of that scarcity problem. Well, I'm curious about your thoughts on the membrane technology that Klaus discussed. Please let me know by commenting on the show notes for this session, which can be found at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 71. You could also email me at David at the water values, and you can tweet at me at DTM 1993. Please tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And as I stated at the top of the show, please do me a favor and rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the show. You can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter and take the listener survey to let me know about topics you'd like to hear about at thewatervalues.com. And and as an example, the interview with Klaus Helix Nielsen came directly from someone filling out the listener survey. So thank you for that. Well, in closing... Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.